It's 9.35 in the morning, this Friday morning, and this is Stan Major, standing just near a group of about 50 demonstrators who are standing across the highway from Rayford Prison near Stark, Florida. As I say, it is uh, about 9.35 this morning, Friday morning, and as of now, the countdown toward the execution of convict and convicted murderer John Spinkling is just 25 minutes away. Hi, this is 76 or 77, and I'm in the back of the family station wagon, and, you know, sort of the breaking news, the broadcast, there was the reporter outside of Stark, which is where the state prison is, and they were, like, reporting it. And uh, literally, when they throw the switch, it burns out the electrical systems so that the reporter goes black. Like, literally, you're listening to it on the radio, and you're like, we're here, and they're about to throw the switch, and blah, 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 and then it goes dead silent. Which, to, you know, anybody listening, was like a pretty big tell, right? That's Alan Goodis, a lawyer and a dedicated defender against the death penalty. Just a few years after Alan heard live radio of the Florida execution of John Spankelink, he joined a private law firm in New York and took on a death penalty case of his own. Critical to Alan's work was whether his clients who were being charged with the death penalty were fit to stand trial on the basis of their intelligence. That is, their IQ. I, I, IQ it's just the, the, one, the one number is supposed to be a stand-in for all of the ways that we measure intelligence? Yeah, that's right. I mean, these are really important questions that I want to talk to you about in this episode, Andrew. What do we mean when we talk about intelligence? And how did the IQ test come to determine who is sentenced to death by the state? I'm Leah Rechtman. And I'm Andrew Middleton. And this is Measure for Measure, a little show sizing up our world. In this episode, we'll discuss the IQ test as a measure of intelligence and its life or death consequences. So, so let's take a step back here. In 1981, Ted Herring robs a Daytona Beach 7-Eleven. He steals $23.34, not a lot of money, uh, and he kills the cashier. Shortly thereafter, Ted is arrested for the 7-Eleven robbery and murder and several other convenience store robberies in the area. During his trial, Ted claimed under oath, and this part's really important, under oath, that someone else had interrupted his robbery and shot the cashier. Who was that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's no evidence of another person, and the story Ted tells about this is very bizarre. He tells a story that someone came in in the middle of his robbery and shot the cashier, someone who wasn't him, and then left, and there's no sort of additional substantiation or storytelling that he can provide. And Ted kept the money. He he keeps the $23 that he and gets. And 34 cents. And 34 cents. Sort of unsurprisingly, Ted Herring later admits that he lied on the stand under oath because he didn't want to admit to his mother that he had killed someone. Oh my goodness, that takes a totally different tone. Right, so the jury recommends that Ted be sentenced to death. And that's where Alan's law firm steps in. It's after his sentencing, when Ted is facing death row. The firm brings Ted's case all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. 
They argue that Ted Herring didn't deserve the death penalty because he is intellectually disabled. So let's talk about what that means to be intellectually disabled, because I think I think in previous episodes we've talked about all the different ways that we can sort of categorize how a person lives or, or exists. And now now we have to figure out what this line is between what counts as intellectually disabled. Yeah. So Ted had an IQ somewhere between 72 and 74. And we'll talk a little bit later in the episode why we don't have an exact number. But really importantly here, Ted couldn't perform basic tasks like switching buses or holding down a job. He also couldn't keep his story straight under oath. He even given all of the reasons to lie about shooting this convenience store clerk, he wasn't able to tell a compelling story. He wasn't able to tell a story that made sense, that had a beginning, middle, and an end and evidence associated with it. The IQ test stands for intelligence quotient. The test was developed in pre-war 1900s Germany. And the creator is this um, eugenicist psychiatrist invested in scientific racism. He creates the IQ test to weed out people who are feeble-minded from society and forcibly sterilize them in order to reduce incidents of people he considered to be of low intelligence in the German population. Uh, yikes. And that didn't just stay in Germany, did it? No, it, it didn't. I, I think that we think about this today as a really conservative position, and it's really easy to look at this as a predecessor to Nazi Germany. But in fact, weeding out the quote unquote feeble minded or weak minded was considered to be on the cutting edge of science and progress. Um, this was a, a thing in the US too. I just want to say that. Um, yeah, in the in the book, um, The Great Gatsby, um, I, one of the characters actually mentions that they're just sort of like hanging out after on the on the tennis courts after they've been playing around. They're like, oh, oh yeah, also, you, you know, uh, how, how do you feel about sterilizing the uh, the weekend infirm? And everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, that's what? Yeah, like in, during the jazz age, in the nineteen twenties, that was that that was a a a thing that one might uh, uh, entertain your your company at uh, um, at a cocktail party. Well, that's horrific, and also, frankly, the practice of sterilizing people who are considered feeble minded hasn't really gone away today either. As you know, I was really obsessed with the Free Britney campaign, and I'm still pretty obsessed with conservatorship in general, especially because we're based in California for the moment. And, you know, one of the things with, with Britney Spears' case is that she was forced to wear an IUD to limit her capacity to give birth because she was considered not to be capable of making decisions for herself because she was mentally infirm. So this process, this like structure of ways of dealing with intellectual disability definitely still exists. Today, and in, on the best of days, IQ is used to determine intellectual disability status, fitness for military service, and admissions to elite private schools. The way I have encountered IQ outside of Alan Goodis, who I've known almost my whole life, uh, is that I was granted preliminary entry into a competitive private school at the age of two, um, but in order to graduate to the associated private kindergarten, I was required at the ripe age of four to take an IQ test right around the same time I was learning my primary colors. So you had to do some some uh, like SAT questions you'd like this is like that. I mean, yeah, I, I someone was asking me about this the other day. I totally remember the IQ test because like I loved adult attention and basically the entire test was like a very well-trained psychiatrist sitting down with me and doing like patterns and having a conversation. I had a blast. My mom was super stressed and I did not have any of the like contextual cues or ability to understand stakes to determine that it was a high-stress environment. Um, we basically looked at patterns and shapes, uh, and it was great. Well, that, it sounds like a lovely way to spend an afternoon. 
Yeah, but the fact that I remember it, I think, is because my mom was so stressed about whether or not I was going to get into kindergarten. That's kind of wild that, that there's still such high stakes. I mean, I guess I guess the test itself has evolved pretty substantially, but the idea hasn't, and the idea still has high stakes. Right, the idea that you can determine someone's intelligence based on some sort of short-form exam. Frankly, to my mother's credit, getting into kindergarten in New York City is really challenging. That is not a thing I think either of us will ever have to go through ourselves. So all the respect to New York City parents who are in that process. Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> yeah. And I should say also that the IQ test has many forms, right? Like I was pre-literate. I couldn't read or write yet because I was four hmm. and I am an English speaker and I don't have any other like disabilities or anything like that. So there are many different ways that the test is administered, but basically it evaluates five areas, fluid reasoning, verbal and visual logical knowledge, quantitative problem solving, visual spatial processing and working memory. So a lot of it comes down to abstract thinking, like can you process something complicated in your head, whether it be qualitative or quantitative? And part of what Ted Herring's case demonstrated in not being able to tell a good lie, he demonstrated that he wasn't able to engage in abstract thinking. Uh, and, and we've decided that the ability to engage in abstract thinking is ability to uh, think about our actions and consequences of those actions. Yes, exactly. That's right. To think about, you know, so said another way, Andrew, what he, what Ted Herring demonstrated in not being able to tell a compelling story was that he wasn't able to see the connections between his actions and their impacts that in such a way that he became criminalized for killing a convenience store clerk. And since our whole justice system is based on the predilection that there are penalties in society for certain behaviors, and you can avoid those penalties by avoiding those behaviors, uh, someone who is unable to connect behavior and consequence is someone who will unable who will be unable to exist in society. That is exactly right. And we have now jumped ahead to everything that the Supreme Court said about IQ. I want to take a step back for a second for our listeners and ground them in what the IQ test thinks that it's measuring uh, and like what the scoring criteria are. Well, to, to that end, I mean, I know we, t we talked about the, the origin of the term IQ in early 1900s Germany, but one of the first applications of what we now recognize as an IQ test was a French school teacher who just wanted to make sure that none of his students were getting left behind in his lessons uh, in English. Oh, tell me more about that. Well, um, pardon me. Of course, he was in French. He was not teaching English, but he was the French <laughs> equivalent of an English teacher. In like um, literature. Right, right. And and he just had a test that would make sure that he could identify students that were falling behind. He would be rolling his grave to see where the IQ test has actually gone today. But it is relevant because, you know, it was it was a it was a form of assessing specific intellectual skills. Uh-huh. Skills, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right, as opposed to knowledge. As opposed to this sort of like general concept of are you smart or not, or how smart you are. There wasn't this sort of like single variable that we were measuring. It was more like mm. how many words do you understand? Right. Or like, you know, do you know how to put a comma in the right place? Yeah, and I, I think going back to the to the Ted Herring case, we talked about him scoring between a 72 and a 74 you know, I, I don't know how much you're familiar with the IQ test. I don't think you've had an IQ test, right? I don't think I've ever had an IQ test, no. So the IQ test scores on a bell curve, right? So most people are around 100, and then um, the, the vast majority of people are between 85 and 115. That's sort of the general range with the 
absolute average being a hundred. Because it would be it would be really we would we would we would not expect there to be many people who have IQs below, say, fifty. Right. Not many people with an IQ below fifty. Not many people with an IQ above 150. Is there is there an upper or lower limit to the, the IQ score? Not that I'm aware of, but the most extreme I saw on the lower end was like in the 60s, and the most extreme I saw on the higher end was like, yeah, basically 160s, maybe 170s. Okay, so we've got we've got a, a range of values. Most people are sort of clumped in the middle, and along the upper and lower range, they're very, very, very few. Right. So a person with an IQ below 85, but above 70 is is basically someone with below average intelligence. And then someone below 70 is considered to be uh, intellectually disabled, according to uh, psychiatrists. So I think that when we're talking about below 70, and especially below 65, we're likely to see significant comorbidities, like significant other things are also happening for that person other than just having a low IQ or an intellectual disability. When we're talking about um, the higher end of the spectrum, um, so 115 to 130 is just smart, <laughs> you know? And then above 132 is what's considered Mensa. Are you familiar with the Mensa club? Uh, yeah, I've heard it's, it's a, it's a club for smart people. How does that work? Yeah, I don't know. Um, because I think it's ridiculous. So I don't know anyone personally who's in it. I I just think that like, if, (laughs) if Mensa were something to, to take seriously, shouldn't it be like the justice league? Shouldn't it be like, they should be doing something meaningful for us. But what has Mensa ever done? Just taken videos of little kids with really big vocabularies and and print uh, membership cards frankly less impressive than the national spelling bee wait 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 how does how does mensa how do you apply to mensa i think you just write them a letter with your iq score and you're in who who administers the iq score like you can like there are certified people who do iq tests like it's like you send in your adhd thing to your ada person at work for example <laughs> <laughs> so too you send in your Mensa, your IQ score to the Mensa Institute, mm-hmm. and you get a little card, and you probably pay $100. I bet there's a newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's a newsletter that's really insufferably written with, like, inappropriately sophisticated language. Self-congratulatory. Yeah, I bet they have a newsletter of, like, Mensa member achievements. So there are a lot of organizations that have a stake in the outcome of an IQ test. Yeah. I mean, more seriously than Mensa, there is the military, which wants to test people. Basically, they use the IQ test as an aptitude test. Uh, that's how my uncle became a, uh, um, a language specialist in the U.S. Army. Oh, OK. Yeah, probably he took an IQ test. That's probably right. Um But back to Ted Herring's case and how Alan Goodis, our lawyer friend, came to be defending Ted Herring on the basis of low IQ. So in 2002, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that people with an intellectual disability can't be charged with the death penalty. Exactly as you said earlier, basically, if you can't reason in an abstract way, then your relationship, your understanding of the relationship between cause and effect is less strong than someone with a higher IQ. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can't really premeditate your actions, and also you can't really understand why you're being punished, right? So like like on a deep level, your understanding of causality is different. So the penalties associated with um, with the death penalty are less appropriate and are actually considered, according to the Supreme Court, a form of cruel and unusual punishment. 
In the Ted Herring case that Alan Goodis was working on, Ted put forward a clearly false story, saying that he had not killed the 7-Eleven clerk. Which but, he had clearly killed. Right. He had clearly killed the 7-Eleven clerk. There was no information to the contrary. Um, but he lied on the stand and he perjured himself um, and further incriminated himself. So the, the Supreme Court had put forward this ruling in response to a Virginia man named Daryl Atkins. Okay, so totally different case. Right. In 2002, prior to Ted Herring, there's this Daryl Atkins case where the Supreme Court rules that putting someone with a low IQ to the death penalty is considered a form of cruel and unusual punishment. Gotcha. Okay. So this is the case law that existed before Ted was tried. Right. So so Daryl is convicted of attempting to rob a bank and shooting to someone to death. So somewhat similar to Ted Herring. He's found to have an IQ of 59. Really low. Yeah. It's much lower than Ted's. Right. So fi right, 59 is significantly below the benchmark of 70 required to establish intellectual disability. Okay. Seems like a pretty cut and dry case. Well, the Supreme Court rules that that is sufficient information to uh, to bar the death penalty in the case. Uh, the ruling saves Daryl Atkins' life and the lives of many other people with IQ scores below 70 from the death penalty. Here's lawyer Alan Goodis on the Atkins case. It's the proposition that somebody in an impaired state, but maybe not what we would describe as legally insane, to the point where you cannot distinguish between right and wrong and you don't understand the true consequences of what you do. Put those people to the side. There is still a category of people who are sufficiently impaired that they cannot defend themselves. And that's what I think Atkins is about. I, I looked into this quite a lot because I wasn't sure. IQ scores are considered to be scientifically reliable. If you test a person and then test them again, they're likely to have the same or very similar scores both times. But there is some wiggle room. There's something called the Standard Measure of Error, or SEM, and it, it's possible that someone's adult score will change slightly over time, uh, but very unlikely that it will change by more than that standard measure of error, which is about three to five points. Okay, so if we start seeing more error if that number changes over time too much then maybe it makes us less certain that this iq that this iq score is 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 valid right and it's maybe a problem with the administration of it or or some other testing element mm -hmm. the iq test is also influenced by something called the flynn effect named for psychologist james flynn Flynn observed that the average IQ was creeping up slightly over time basically iq was inflating slowly with each generation Flynn hypothesized that people were getting smarter. Others have since guessed that the effect is actually due to some modern norms that reduce low IQ, like regulations to decrease lead in residential housing that reduce low IQ and better water quality and enhance childhood nutrition. These are all really, really important things for an average to high IQ. So the reason I bring up the Flynn uh, effect and the standard measure of error, the standard error of measurement um, is because both are really critical for Alan Goodis in expanding the Atkins ruling, the 2002 ruling, to his case, the Ted Herring case. We actually had an embarrassment of riches. We had IQ tests going back to when he was a child. And his tests ranged from like 68 to 80. And we said even if you took the average of those, if you applied SEM to say nothing of the Flynn effect, you could get scores that were within the range of intellectual disability. So like Alan is saying here, Ted Herring is tested many, many times over the 
long course of his uh, sort of legal entanglements. Um, and he has a 12-point range in scores. Wow. So that's a pretty significant measure of error. Right. Um, and those those scores range from a 68, which is solidly below the 70 cutoff, to an 80. Um, the, the benchmark for int- intellectual disability is 70, so sometimes Ted is below that. Sometimes he's above it. Um, but if you add in the standard measure of error, that creates additional blurriness. So a 70 could really be a 72 or a 75 or or a 68 or a 67. You mm-hmm. know, there, there's there's a broader bar of options for what his score could be. And many of them include something below the 70 threshold. Right. Because if there's if there's a 12 point gap between the two times that he was tested, there could be a 12 point gap between his upper limit as well as a 12 point gap below his lower limit. Exactly. So the other thing that Alan is thinking about is that Ted Herring's case is really old. He robbed the 7-Eleven in 1980. This means that due to the Flynn effect, the average score on IQ tests overall has continued to creep up slightly. So actually the average score now is more like 103. So it's not that it stayed at 100. Uh. So yeah, so Ted Herring's case is old. And because of the Flynn effect, the average score has changed slightly over time. So it's even harder to tell if 70 is really the appropriate cutoff point. Because maybe it's more like 71 or 72 that would actually be the appropriate cutoff point for intellectual disability, given that the with the Flynn effect, the average score overall has crept up. But in this case, we're not actually interested in finding who is within a particular standard deviation of the average intelligence. The goal of the test is to find out at is, is to identify people who cannot determine the consequences to their actions. Right. And and that's a lot of what Alan's arguing, too. He's saying, look, this guy lied under oath. He can't do some basic life things for himself. Don't look at the numbers. Look at the reality. Right. And he brings that to the Supreme Court along with this sort of set of pretty blurry IQ tests. And he says Ted Herring is, is intellectually disabled. If he has a score that is below 70, which he does have, he can't be sentenced to death. I, I think there is there's a very good argument that the test itself is sort of false science. Right. It's a very slippery slope. Leah, right. Between saying there's a standard error of measurement, there's a Flynn effect, there, like 70 is 70, but maybe it's not 70, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 68, maybe it's 81, right? And saying that those sorts of measurements, those sorts of metrics actually aren't up to the task. The Ted Herring case was heard by the Florida Supreme Court and by the United States Court of Appeals. With Allen representing Ted, the courts ruled that an IQ score couldn't be considered the sole bright line for determining intellectual disability. The question of intelligence had to be beyond the measure, more than whether someone tested at or below 70, more than a point on the scientific spectrum. The prohibition on the death penalty for intellectually disabled people was about whether someone could be held responsible for their actions. That sounds like a very different test. Exactly, because at the end of the day, the test is just a test, and a human life is so much richer, more complicated, and more nuanced than one number. The Ted Herring ruling saved 30 other inmates in Florida from facing the death penalty. 
But more than that, the ruling continues to chip away at the notion that the state could use a simple test, like IQ, to measure a human's capacity for moral responsibility and whether they live or die. Measure for Measure is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. This show is executive produced by me, Leah Rechtman, created by Andrew Middleton, and sound engineered by Greg Friedel. Our music is by Siraj Sintu and Mackenzie Kugel. Thanks, as always, to Zach Davis for his support. And very special thanks this episode to Alan Goodis, both for his hard work in this field every day and also for his time as he helped us learn about this critical issue. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can learn more on our website, ministryofideas.org measure, or find us on Twitter at Measure4M and Instagram at MeasureForMeasurePod. That's with the number four. You can also email us at MeasureForMeasurePod at gmail.com. That's Measure for Measure with the number four. Thanks for listening. See you next time.